And if you're new to Central, what we wanted to do is just spend a couple of weeks talking about what is essential to us, being with God, being in community, and, and today being on mission. And what we've done so far just in this, uh, in this service is just talk about the how, how you're helping us meet needs. But today, I don't really want to talk about how. I want to talk about why. One of the great things of COVID or one of the great impacts of COVID is churches that have been doing the how of mission the same way, probably not just for years, but for decades, have been forced to change their methods. Believe me, that's a good thing. It's a sad thing that churches needed to change their methods, but it's a good thing that they did. Because sadly, America is in this transitional phase of moving from a Christian culture to what I've called a post-Christian and a pre-Christian culture. In other words, as Christians, we are entering a phase where we are moving from being a religious majority to where we will be a convictional minority. And convictional minority people have to change their methods. So I rejoice that one of the benefits of COVID is that churches are changing the how. We have to change the how. But it is essential that we never change the why. We'll never change the why. And if you've been here for the last five, six years, you know I'll com I'm committed to changing the how. We are not going to be a church that is married to our methods. We are a church that is married to our mission. We are not going to be a church that is afraid to change how we do things. But we will never be a church that changes why we do things. The why will always stay the same. The message will always remain the center and the essential component of all that we do. And so today, I want to talk about the why. It's sad, but so many churches are more committed to their methods than they are to their mission. In America in the 1980s, it became clear that the, the culture was changing, and many of the institutional churches, the big five denominations, a number of them recognized this change and said, you know what, if we don't change, then the church will become irrelevant. And sadly, what they changed was the message, and liberal theology started to dominate many of these institutional churches. And do you know what the reality is? The reality is that those churches, that change their message are the ones that are falling into decline. The ones who've stayed true to the message are the ones that are seeing God do an incredible work. We have to stay true to the essential message, but we have to be willing to continue to change the methods. And the problem when we change the method is that it is, it is disconcerting. When the world outside us is changing so much, so many people just yearn to come into a church that helps them feel that everything is normal. 
And we do need to be a place where it's safe to be in here, but at the same time, we need to be a place where we recognize what we're called to be. And so today, I want to focus this message on the why, on the message that we're called uh, to give. Now, if you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, because this is a passage that really talks about the why. If you haven't got a Bible, you'll see it on the screen, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning to read at verse 11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. Fear here doesn't mean angst in that regard, but wholehearted worship. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all, and that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. And all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the mystery of reconciliation, that, uh, the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. And so we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And here's why. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. This is the why. It's that God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself and that those who accept this message would become his ambassadors in the world. And it's central, the mission is so important because the message is so essential. And I want to talk about the, the nature of that message today. And as I was uh, planning this message and just really praying about it, uh, my son started school. And uh, again this week, and the week went well, so Molly, I'm sad to hear that some people found it so difficult. I don't know about you, but as a parent, I was relieved that my kid finally went back to school. <laughs> and it seemed to be going really well. And just this week, he had some homework, and I was just going through that with him. And he goes to a Christian school, and, and uh, part of the, the work he did in his Bible class was the four-chapter gospel. That was the title of it, the four-chapter gospel. And I'm going, what kind of school is this? Four-chapter gospel? Wait a minute. 28 in Matthew, 24 in Luke, 21 in... Four and then I suddenly realized what they were talking about. 
it was my message today. It's the fact that the, the message that is at the heart of everything we do has basically four scenes or four acts, or what they call four chapters. It's creation, the fall, redemption, restoration. At least that's the way you look at it if you're looking at it from an ecclesiological, from a church perspective. If you look at it from a missiological perspective, from the context of the mission of the church, it would read creation, sin, gathering, commissioning. And so that's what I want to do. I, I just want to spend some time talking about the message. Because, folks, the message never changes and yet all too often, I know, especially with the way I'm wired, I, I, I kind of open the Bible and then I try and help you see something that maybe you've never seen before. But today I just sense God telling me, Craig, just tell them what we've all heard before and just remind the people, my people, of what is the heart of the message, that I love them and that I have a plan and a purpose for their life. And so there are four acts as a part of this message. You've heard it before, but I pray that something in what is said, something in what is read from this text, and there's going to be a lot of scriptures today, is just going to remind you that God loves you and that God has a plan, not just for your life, but also for your life in the context of this world. And so the message begins, the acts begin right there at the beginning with the story of creation. And this is the idea that God is the author and sustainer of all creation. That we, humanity, are the pinnacle of God's creation, and we were designed to be in a relationship with Him. And as such, every human life, it doesn't matter what color of skin, it doesn't matter how much money you have or how much money you don't have, every human life is of incredible dignity and worth. And that human life doesn't begin at birth, it begins at conception. All life, from beginning to end. Now, when it comes to creation, the Bible talks about the who, it talks about the what, and it describes the how. When it comes to creation, the who is the Father, Romans 1, 19 through 20, creates. The Son, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, creates, and the Spirit in Genesis chapter 1 creates. What we have here is basically what we would call ontological unity with functional diversity. In other words, that our God is one person in three natures, but each person has a distinct function and a role. So in the Scriptures, the Father originates, the Son executes, as in carries that out, and the Holy Spirit perfects. But the who of creation is the triune God. The what of creation is perfectly described in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. I love this. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation. Firstborn there doesn't talk about literally firstborn, but the idea of priority. For in Him, what does it say? All things were created. Now, what does it mean by all things? It means things in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, all things whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things are being created through Him and for Him. 
He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Who? Father, Son, and Spirit. What? All things. Everything that there is. The things we see and the things that we do not. The who, the what. Now the how. And this is where it gets fun, isn't it? The Bible describes the how, but not in as much detail as many of us would like. This is the how. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. How? God said. Well, what we want to know is what happened after God said. Now, I imagine God creating and stepping back and saying, whoa, I just created a 24-hour period of alternating light and darkness on earth. And I imagine the angels looking at him and saying, what are you going to do now? And God said, well, I'm going to call it a day. The how of creation begs for a conversation that I wish I had time to go into, but I don't. But I did hear a funny story one time about a family in church when the topic of creation came up, and dad was sitting there skeptical, and mom could feel it, the kids could feel it, and on the way home, dad started to talk about Darwin and monkeys, and this left the daughter really, really confused. Mom's response was classic. Mom said to the daughter, well, hon, I told you my side of the family, dad told you his. Now, all I can say on this is that either you're going to believe that the universe existed forever and didn't require creation, or you believe that God existed forever and did not require creation. You'll eventually come up with either an eternal God or an eternal universe. And I do not honestly know why it is more scientific to believe in a universe without cause than it is to believe with an eternal God without cause. That's where it comes down to. Both are statements of faith. But the Bible is pretty clear. Creation was created by a trained God. It was all things were created, things we see and things we don't. And that how is simply through God's spoken word. But either way you look at this, our story begins with a God who is involved in the things of the world. But sadly, it continues with the whole idea of brokenness. Now, this first phrase may shock you. The power of sin existed before Adam and Eve. If you're familiar with the stories of the Scriptures, you'll know what Jesus even comments about seeing Satan fall from heaven. Sin existed before Adam and Eve, but it entered our world through them. As they rebelled against God and His commands, and the consequences of this rebellion are visible in every aspect of life, as our relationship with God, with each other, and even with our planet are fractured. And no, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm speaking out for global warming. Okay, chill out. <laughs> but every aspect of life is fractured. Our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, and indeed the way that the planet is being treated. That's why the Scriptures say all of creation cries out, as in childbirth. And so our story continues with something called the reality of sin, the reality of sin. Sin is a disease that affects 100% of people. 
the reality of sin. Romans 3, through 24 says this, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. I'll explain that in the next act. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. In other words, there's no difference between people. So what is the great leveler here? The next phrase, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, it doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter what color of skin you've got. It doesn't matter anything at all because there's one thing that makes us all equal, and it's not simply that we're humans. It's that we are fallen. But the good news is, but all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that comes by Jesus Christ. All have sinned, and there's only one exception to that, and that is the man, Jesus. Now, we shouldn't really need convincing about sin, right? The evidence is absolutely everywhere. But here's what the Bible says. It's one thing to accept the theoretical reality of sin. It is another thing to come to the realization that we are sinners. It is easy to look at the reality of sin when we look at other people's issues. It is a lot harder to acknowledge that we're one of those people. And that's why we say four essentials here. The the fourth essential here is that we believe that even though we are all broken, we can all be made whole. We'll hear about that next week. It's the reality of transformation. King David was able to get past the reality of sin to the realization that he was a sinner. And it took him a number of stupid decisions to get to that point. Psalm 51, verses 1 through 5, is said to have been written after the pain caused by the Bathsheba incident. This is what he wrote in his reflection, Psalm 51, 1 through 5. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. And, and that part is the real part. We can all say that in that casual sense. Oh, God, I know I've fallen. We may be in a good season. It may be an okay season. We can say, God, I know I'm messed up. I know I'm not perfect. But what we see in the next part of this is that David moves beyond the reality of sin to the realization that he is a sinner. This is what he said, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Let me ask you, have you had a season where your sin is before you? Do you know how heavy that is? And this is what David says. It makes him feel that against you only have I sinned. And that doesn't mean to say that his sin, the actions that he did uh, to other people had no impact on them. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, God, first of all, my sin is a sin against you. What I've done is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and you are justified when you judge. And here he says, surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. See, it's one thing to know that sin is a problem. It's another thing to realize that sin is a problem for me. And I hope you notice that emphasis. David not only acknowledged that he had committed a sinful act in his adultery with Bathsheba and arranging the murder of her husband, but he also realized that even before that, His whole disposition from conception onwards was tilted towards sin. And this 
is that key point. Not only do we do sinful acts, we are inherently sinful in our very nature. So the seeds of rebellion, in a sense, are encoded into us. Now, let's be honest, we don't like thinking of ourselves as sinners. We, we don't like hearing it that much, and we certainly don't like it when someone is pointing the finger at us. And I'm mindful of this. Someone told me years ago, you know, when you point a finger at someone else, just remember there are usually three fingers pointing back at you. We don't like that, and it's understandable. But the reality is we are in our being, in our thoughts, in our actions, sinners, and there's no getting away from it. We may like to think of ourselves as essentially good people who make an occasional mistake, but the biblical picture of us is that we are, in a sense, people sliding down that slippery slope of sin, occasionally branching, uh, catching that branch of morality and decency to kind of stop that slide and even uh, pull ourselves up a little bit. But the picture is that we're desperate and we need a solution. And the good news is there is a solution, but that can't come yet because it's only act two. Sin enters. There was a a season in the church, we we call it the dark ages, where this message got lost, and the ritual of Christianity really drove more of what was happening than the, the relational side of it. And God used a man by the name of Martin Luther to really bring that message, excuse me, back over. And there's a story that is told that during a serious, a serious illness, the devil came to Martin Luther as he was sick in bed and looked at him, Luther says, with a kind of triumphant smile. He unrolled this big scroll, which kind of unwound by itself, and Luther was said to have been looking at this scroll with that long, long list of his own sins, one by one by one. And at first, he reeled in despair, but then suddenly, he cries out, one thing you have forgotten, Satan, the rest is all true, but one thing you have left out, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses me from all my sin. And in this moment, the accuser is set to flee and never to return. See, there is this reality of sin. We all know that. But the essential message of the gospel is not simply that we know that sin is a problem, but that we know that sin is a problem for us. And then in this moment, we can move into Act 3. And this is Act 3, the essential message of the gospel. God did not leave us wallowing in the lostness of our distress and sin. He calls out a people to himself, and he makes a covenant with them. He provides a guide to covenant life with them, the law. That wasn't the law in a sense, but the guide, the teaching. And calls this people back to obedience through the prophets. But finally, he provides a way of dealing with sin, the day of atonement, which foreshadowed the forgiveness freely and fully available through Jesus Christ. This is that third act. It's the act of redemption, salvation, or in a missional context, the gathering of the church. Now, once a year in Israel, and this is the foundation for the atonement, there was a special day when the faults and the failures of the people and their rebellion 
were dealt with once and for all. It was the ritual, the Day of Atonement. And as you might expect, in that culture, it involved sacrifice and animal sacrifice. And we read about it, if you want to do this, I haven't got time to, to read this scripture, you can read about it in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 15 through 22. Now, the passage will talk about a bull being sacrificed, and then it talks about two goats. The first goat is killed as a sin offering. That was the people's way of, uh, of apologizing, of acknowledging to God that, look, we've sinned. But the second goat was not killed. What happened with the second goat is that Aaron went over to that second goat. He would place his hands on that goat, and he would speak the sins of the people, symbolically transferring the sin of the people onto the goat. And then rather than being slaughtered, that goat was set free, ran off into the wilderness, symbolizing the removal of the sin from the people. You heard the phrase scapegoat? It comes from Leviticus chapter 16. It's the idea that someone takes our issues and removes them as far from us as it possibly can. That goat takes the blame and is cast away. And so through the Day of Atonement, we see two things happening in this story. First, we see that the penalty of sin is paid for by the death of the first goat. But secondly, we see the removal of the sin from the people. This Day of Atonement, the New Testament said, is a picture of what happened when Jesus died on the cross for us. Jesus died, paid the price for our sin, but the good news is the penalty for that sin was taken so far from us. The great chapter for this, Hebrews chapter 9. I'd love to be able to read all of it, but I can't, so I'm going to read from verse 7 through 15. With that Old Testament background in mind, listen to what the author of Hebrews says in this text. But only the high priest entered the room, this is that day of atonement, and only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing this, was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tab tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time. You see this? The Old Testament Day of Atonement was an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and the sacrifices being offered, and here we go, were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. See, the old sacrifice simply covered the sin of the people. It didn't deal with the problem. What was the problem? The problem was the reality of sin, the controlling power of sin that needed to be dealt with on the inside. They are only a matter of food and drink, of various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. Remember what I said in the first week? Life with God is not about ritual, but relationship. Ritual is about outside in. This day of atonement, the author is saying, is about the outside in. It covers. It doesn't cleanse. But 
The author goes on, when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that it to say is not a part of this creation. But when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, not part of the creation. Sorry, I repeated myself. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, Leviticus 16. He entered through the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, therefore obtaining eternal redemption. And here we go. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they outwardly clean. They are outwardly clean. They're kind of covered. But he says, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished, see, without sin, to God, cleanse our conscience inside from acts that lead to death, so that we may, what, be set free to serve a living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, that is, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from sins committed under the first covenant. There's a lot in there, right? But the whole idea is the Old Testament Day of Atonement foreshadowed, pictured what was going to happen through Jesus Christ. Now, if you've ever got blood on your shirt, you'll know that you need to wash it out immediately because if you don't, it'll stain. Now, the weird thing for me is, I don't know about you, but when I read this, the idea of blood is kind of freaky, but taking blood and sprinkling it everywhere, which is what they would have done in the Old Covenant, I, doesn't, I can't get the, the idea on my head that that wouldn't make me clean, that would make me dirty. Right? It just feels weird. How can I be clean once blood is sprinkled? When I see blood, I want to wash it off. But there's symbolism in this. You see, modern medicine, now the ancient Hebrews, of course, had no clue about this. It's actually revealed how accurate it is to speak of the cleansing property of blood. Dr. Paul Brand, who specialized in the treatment of leprosy, wrote about how the blood is designed to cleanse the body of toxins and waste that are built up in the tissues. This is what he writes. No cell lies more than a hair breadth away from a blood capillary, lest poisonous byproducts pile up. Through a basic chemical process of gas diffusion and transfer, individual red blood cells traveling slowly inside those capillaries simultaneously release the cargoes of fresh oxygen and also absorb carbon dioxide, urea, and uric acid. These red cells deliver these potentially hazardous, hazardous chemicals to organs that then dump them outside of the body. The ancient Hebrews didn't know about this, but there was cleansing power. There is cleansing power in the blood. And if that is true of human blood, how much more so, the author of Hebrews says, is it true of the blood of Jesus? Now, Martin Luther had this revelation of this, and he wrote this, sin has but two places where it may be. Either it may be with you, so that it lies upon your neck, or with Christ, the Lamb of God. If it now lies upon your neck, you are lost. 
If, however, it lies upon Christ, you are free and will be saved. Take, Luther says, which of these you prefer. See, this story, the essential message, turns on this point. That yes, we are broken. Yes, we are fallen. But God offers redemption. And when we accept that redemption, we become a part of a people who are put right by Jesus and become a part of that putting right project of the world. We are gathered as one family and as one people. And that leads to Act 4, to this whole idea of restoration and in a missional context of commissioning. And the implication of receiving the good news is this. We are not called to be a reservoir, but a river of God's blessing. We are commissioned as Christ's ambassadors to share His offer of peace and restoration. We're to live missionally and take the gospel from our homes to our neighborhoods and to the ends of the earth. And uh, that, so that all people may have the chance to know Christ and to re respond to His love. This is essential for, for us. It always has been. Central grew from a small church to where it is today because at the heart of it all, irrespective of who was in this pulpit, there was a commitment to make sure that the message was always the message. And it didn't matter whether what church you were from. At the end of the day, in the 80s and 90s, this church grew because there were so many people who had been attending churches but never heard the essential life-giving power of the gospel. And despite their Christianized state, person after person after person came to the front of this church, the front of these altars, be that in here or in the chapel, and recognized, you know what, I need to accept Jesus for myself. And in that moment, they were put right with God and became a part of His putting right project with the world. In other words, they embraced this. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. I honestly believe that this text is the critical text for this season. We've understandably looked at Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them. And that is a great text, and I love that text. But it feels more organizational, right? This one is personal. Jesus says, look, the Father sent me, and now you've come to me, and guess what? I'm sending you. And I think the success of the church in the emerging America is based on whether we will accept that this verse is as true for us as it was the first time that the disciples of Jesus heard it. And if we do, this is where this verse comes in, Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. In other words, from where we find ourselves, there will be this increasing movement of the gospel throughout the ends of the earth. You know, the more I look at this, these verses from God's perspective, the more I see my faith being less about me and Jesus and more about how this broken, dark uh, world kind of attacked by this hostile power of sin needs to be engaged by me and you. 
And, and when I look at this world, I see a few spots of light, a few souls with the vaccine who do not cower away from the darkness, but recognize that they have received hope and life and they are committed at great cost to them of taking this message of redemption and transformation to the world. Have you, any of you ever seen that TV show, Hoarders? Right? Have you ever seen that? You know, cameras go in and you've got these people who are extreme hoarders. And, and you look at that and it's freaky, right? It's just awful. It's so unclean. I remember Vipka's uncle, who's passed away now, he came to us one time and he said to me, as I was talking to him one time, Craig, you'd never believe it, but he had this apartment complex and he said, I wanted to do some renovation work in the complex, so I have permission from all of the tenants to, to kind of let the contractor go in and, and look at the apartment. Well, one of the contractors went, uh, the contractor went into one of the apartments and as they opened the door, they discovered an extreme hoarder. He hoarded bottles. He hoarded bottles, literally. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bottles in there that uh, when Dieter actually took those bottles away, he got nearly $500 back in cash. The guy was basically hoarding something that had value. I think one of the challenges for us as believers in this day and age is how do we make sure we do not do spiritually what that tenant was doing literally? The message that we have been given is of more value than bottles, and yet we hoard it. We have been given a living hope, and as a church, we believe that God has called us to share this living hope with the world. And we are committed to finding the methods that will work according to the context that we are in to deliver that message of hope. And I give you this guarantee. I guarantee you that the way we do mission now, we will not do it that way in three years. I guarantee you that. Because we will continue to change the methodology. We will continue to change the how. We will not be married to the how. But we will always be married to the why. We will always be married to the mission. The mission is we have been given hope and life through Jesus Christ. And that there is a world out there who do not realize that there is a chasm, a gulf that is separating them from a God who loves them. And we want to be a part of the tools that God is using to reach a lost and a broken world. What I want to do to end is I want to call the team back up, and I want us to sing that hymn. It's a modern hymn. It's a powerful song. It's the, the song, Living Hope. And as we sing these words, I, I pray that they will become so familiar to you that you will find yourself echoing these words as you go about your life through this week. And I pray that you would recognize that God's purpose in saving you is not simply for you to be right with God, but for you and I to join together to be a part of God, the project of God putting the world to right. So won't you stand with me? The team are going to start the play. 
and we're just going to sing this song together that talks about the essential message of Jesus. Father, I thank you for the hope and the life that is found in Jesus. Father, I thank you that even though we were so far from you, Christ died for us. He bridged the chasm that separated us from you. And Father, I pray that as we sing this song, that we would realize that you didn't just do this for us. You did this for the world you created. And I pray, Father, that as we sing, the words that we utter, the words that we hear, would become part of our commitment to be your hands and feet in this world for your glory and fame. In Jesus' name.